You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. I believe there's a specter haunting society in the United States these days, and also much of the rest of the developed world in various local variations. And that specter is the specter of a new counterculture movement. I believe there is such a thing. I believe that I am in my own humble way at least somewhat a part of it, and I believe many, if not most of you listening, are as well. What do I mean by this? What is this new counterculture movement of which I speak? Are you actually a part of it, whether you realize it or not? Stay tuned for the answers. This is CJ, and this is the Dangerous History Podcast, episode number 67, The New Counterculture, question mark. So this is something a little different today, a change of gears from the detailed historical narrative episodes I've been doing so much of lately with the American Revolution series and the two revolutionary aftershock episodes. Now, you might not think so at first glance unless you happen to think just like I do, but this is very much a dangerous history topic. It's just very recent and very current history. But since this show is about not just learning the past, but also understanding the present and preparing for the future, I think this is a highly relevant topic. I also think it's a highly relevant topic because I do think this show is a little moon, or if you want to be a little more generous, I don't know, maybe a tiny little planet in the universe that is this new counterculture. And I think many of you in the audience are parts of this universe as well. And some of you are, no doubt, much more significant planets or stars in that universe than I am, whether you realize it or not. I also think that I was a passive part of this movement for years as a consumer of new counterculture material and thought and media before I became an active member, a producer, a little over a year ago when I started the Dangerous History Podcast. I'll also share something with you I don't think I've ever mentioned before. This topic, what I'm calling the new counterculture. Oh, and by the way, side note, as far as I know, no one else has used this exact terminology to describe this exact phenomenon. If somebody else has, I am not aware of it. I haven't come across it. I've, I've hit upon the same terminology independently. But um, anyway, this concept of the new counterculture, as I'm using the term in this episode, is a topic that I think is so important, even though or perhaps because most of the mainstream society is oblivious to it, that it's one of several topics I've actually considered, and in this case, I'm still considering writing a book on. I've actually seriously thought and still have it as a possibility to write a book about the new counterculture as I'm going to describe it in this episode. That's how much of a big deal I think that this is and can be. But I'm getting ahead of myself. First, let me explain what I'm talking about with this concept of a new counterculture movement. So if I'm talking about a potentially a new counterculture movement, 
What do I mean? Well, first, let me say what I mean by movement. By movement, I mean like a broad social, intellectual, and even somewhat aesthetic and kind of lifestyle movement. But a loose social movement, not the same thing as like a very um, disciplined, very tightly defined political movement or something like that. So examples of the type of thing I mean by movement in this sense would be something like the Enlightenment or perhaps the Renaissance, say, right? These and also you could come up with various literary and artistic movements, which are different in that they're geared more towards just, you know, one uh, you know, just towards literary or artistic endeavors, but are still similar in the fact that they're these loosely defined movements. They pop up when you have a lot of people um, espousing similar ideas or making similar innovations at around the same time as each other. Oftentimes, these are people who know each other and are influencing each other's work, right? Cross-pollination and so on. But these are not tightly organized movements with identifiable leaders in in the sense of people telling others what to do. Now, there might be leaders in terms of influence, right? The most famous artists of the Renaissance, for example, might have been leaders in a way of the movement, but not in a direct sense of giving orders and telling people what to do. Now, these sorts of movements that we're talking about here are hard to identify without some degree of hindsight, but if I may be so bold, let me suggest that as an historian and as someone who looks back on the past and looks for these sorts of things, perhaps, perhaps I'm able to see this happening in real time now and to see it in a more big picture historical context way, even though it's still in the present right now, than most people who are living through it and and perhaps even more so than people who are even more part of the movement than I am. Because as I'll say later, I'm sort of part of this movement and also partly outside of it. So that's that's what we mean by movement in this sense. Now, counterculture, what do we mean? Well, theoretically, counterculture could mean any sort of a culture that is significantly different from or opposed to whatever the mainstream establishment culture is in their society. But the term counterculture, even though you could argue that there have always been counterculture since there has been such a thing as human civilization, the term counterculture is of relatively recent vintage. It's less than 50 years old. The oldest usage of the term, as far as I've been able to tell, was by a sociologist named Theodore Rosak, or Rosak, I'm not sure how you pronounce it. His last name is spelled R-O-S-Z-A-K. In a book he wrote that was published in 1969, by the way, perfect year for a book on this topic, the book was called The Making of a Counterculture. So he's talking about what probably most of you would think about it, myself included, when you just hear the word counterculture a la carte, which is the counterculture of the late 60s and early 70s. Right, the hippie, yippie era, the anti-Vietnam War, civil rights sort of movement, and so on. And in his book on the counterculture of the time, and so Rosak is someone who was doing what I'm attempting to do here and may potentially do in the future should I um, actually end up writing a book on this or something. And that is, he's looking at it as it's unfolding. From his perspective, it is very recent history and into current events, right? So not looking back on it from 50 years later with all those benefits of hindsight. And there's pluses and minuses to both. There's there's pluses and minuses to writing about something as it's happening and pluses and minuses to writing about it many years later. Well, in his book on the counterculture of the 60s and 70s, Rosak argued that the main force behind the emergence of that 60s counterculture was a rejection of the technocracy that had emerged in the United States during and, and uh, even more so after World War II. Technocracy, by the way, if you're not familiar with that term, is the management of society by technical experts. And in the American variation of technocracy, it's typically both state and corporate technocrats who are managing society in various ways. And there's a lot of overlap between them in terms of each influencing the other and so on. So that's counterculture as Theodore Rosak described it in the 60s, and as most of us understand it from that time period. It's people who rejected not only specific political 
ideas and institutions of their time period, but also even rejected a lot of the aesthetics and social norms and so on. So what was the old counterculture or the original counterculture, this, this movement of the 60s and 70s? Now, most of us have a basic idea of what this is. So in this episode, at least, I'm not going to be spending a lot of time on this topic in, in great detail. Just a brief sketch to kind of refresh your memory um, of, of what it is we're talking about here. This old or original counterculture, the one that Rossack was writing about, when, again, probably the perfect year to be doing so, 1969, was, of course, a very messy and diverse movement. But I think we can pin down some of its basic characteristics. So, for example, rejection of conventional social norms when it comes to things like sexuality, when it comes to things like uh, gender relationships, race relations, and, and so on, just across the board, rejecting a lot of the establishment post-war social norms. The old counterculture would also be defined by advocacy for specific causes. Now, not every member of the old counterculture would have been equally active in all these movements, and some of them might have not not been in favor of every single one of these causes, but the causes most commonly associated with the old counterculture would be things like anti-war, especially in regards to the Vietnam War, of course, at the time, the draft, which added all kinds of additional fuel to the fire of the old counterculture until the draft was stopped by the Nixon administration in the early 70s. Um, the anti-nuclear movement, which oftentimes, you know, went hand in hand with the broader anti-war movement, various types of environmental movements in that time period would, would be part of the old counterculture. Of course, the civil rights movement, which very much came before the counterculture really got going, but nonetheless, much of the people involved in the counterculture would have been, to one degree or another, support, supporters of the broader civil rights movement. Civil liberties as well, things like free speech, um, freedom from censorship, opposition to government surveillance and so on, which go back and check out my episode about COINTELPRO and you get a sense of how bad the FBI and some of the other government agencies were in terms of infiltrating and disrupting all these sorts of organizations. And that's one of the internal links I'll put to the show notes for this episode on profcj.org is to my episode on COINTELPRO. Other causes that the original counterculture of the 60s and 70s would have been associated with would be kind of broadly anti-authoritarianism, women's rights, women's lib, uh, the black power movement, which is somewhat different from the civil rights movement. It's, It's more radical and goes further in some ways. And then also the aesthetics and the lifestyle and so on of what everyone always thinks of, which is sex, drugs, and rock and roll, right? The whole Woodstock aesthetic, you know, the long hair, the psychedelic uh, drugs, and also the psychedelic music and so on. Now, it's not my purpose here to get into a huge analysis of this original counterculture. Um, I'll just put the quick version of my feelings of it, which are that it had some great aspects. It certainly did accomplish some good things, but that it had a lot of flaws and contradictions and problems that prevented it from being what it could have been and achieving what it could have achieved. I think when you look at the overall goals of the original counterculture movement, such as they can be ascertained, obviously this is not a very tightly organized and disciplined movement for the most part when you look at the whole thing, right? I mean, specific parties and groups might have been disciplined, but the overall movement was not. And I'm not saying that's entirely a bad thing, but, you know, as much as you can flesh out the overall goals of the old counterculture, it certainly played a part in achieving some of them, such as eventually bringing about an end to the Vietnam War, having some success uh, in the fields of race relations and so on, for sure. But it did not achieve anything close to its, its grander vision, again, as much as you can try to ascertain that. It stopped the Vietnam War and it stopped the draft at that time, but it didn't stop the Cold War. It didn't stop the overall march of American imperialism as a whole. And and these things just, you know, picked back up um, a decade or two later for the most part. It didn't radically end uh, the technocratic society and the corporatism and the authoritarian big government stuff going on. It didn't. 
It didn't. It, it may have slowed down some of these things for a little while at most, but you know, all these sorts of trends are far more advanced now than they were, let's say, in the mid-70s or late 70s. So you have to say, in the grand scheme of things, on many of its larger issues, while, while the counterculture may have been successful on some specific issues, in terms of its overall like big-picture goals, it was mostly a failure or, at best, kind of a, a very, very temporary short-lived success. What happened? Well, again, this could take an entire book or hours itself analyzing why the 60s counterculture failed ultimately to achieve its larger goals in in most cases and to live up to its potential. But just a quick sketch here, and then we'll move on to look at the new counterculture. I would say that, first off, it's important to point out, while everyone wants to link the old counterculture with the baby boomers, and it's obviously most of the old counterculture types were of the baby boom generation. But it deserves to be pointed out that it was a very large generation. It's literally called the baby boom generation for a reason. We're talking millions of people. And in reality, it was only a very small percentage who were really active, engaged participants in the counterculture. Most, even if they dressed the part, had the shaggy hair, wore the weird psychedelic colored shirts and what have you, you know, they might have been involved in the sex, drugs and rock and roll part. But as far as the people who were really, in terms of intellect and lifestyle, really plugged into the, you know, the old counterculture, it was still a relatively small percentage of the overall baby boom generation, number one. So, You know, part of why so many of the baby boomers by the 80s and 90s were living lives totally contrary to the old counterculture was that most of them had never really been a part of it to begin with, other than very superficially. But as to those who were, at some point, active participants on some level in the old counterculture, many of them, sooner or later, most of them, this happened sometime in the 1980s or 90s, sold out to the very system they'd once opposed. They became corporate business people. They became establishment politicians. A great example of this is the Clintons. You know, Bill and Hillary Clinton were 60s radicals. Surprisingly radical, by the way, when you look at some of their activities in the late 60s. And yet by the early 90s, Bill Clinton is becoming president of the United States, during which time he would use American military might Fairly aggressively, he didn't launch any full-scale American invasions of any major countries, but, you know, the sanctions on Iraq, the enforcement of the no-fly zone on Iraq, the various military operations in the Balkans, um, in Somalia, and a bunch of other places, you know, sent troops into Haiti. I mean, he hardly governed as as an anti-imperialist president this former 60s radical, right? So the Clintons, and and of course Hillary in many ways, seems to be even more of an aggressive neocon than Bill on foreign policy. I mean, on foreign policy, she's hardly distinguishable from most of the Republican potential nominees for 2016. So what happened? Well, you can never know for sure what's going on inside the mind of anyone, but either... The Clintons never really believed the counterculture stuff to begin with and were just doing it because it was a way to get popular and so on at the time. Or maybe they did and they later kind of decided, you know what, I'd rather be famous and powerful and I'd rather be running the system and be the, the big person than to be some Yahoo without any power criticizing the system. Whatever the reason or mixture of reasons They're a great example of people who were part of the counterculture in a lot of ways and then became not just part of the establishment, but in their case, some of the centerpieces of the establishment. And their daughter, Chelsea, married, I think it was a guy who's some rising star at Goldman Sachs not too many years ago. So there you go. And why? I don't think there's any simple answer as to why people who were part of the counterculture So many of them eventually sold out and became part of the very system they had opposed. I think part of the problem was the old counterculture, the original counterculture, always had problems with philosophical coherence and consistency. And in particular, the new left 
couldn't really decide whether it was for statism or individualism. It sounded very anti-statist, very almost libertarian in a lot of ways. And yet, oftentimes, it's also advocating for some sort of quasi-socialism or some sort of big government solution to so many of society's problems. And I think any movement that is philosophically either incoherent or self-contradictory or some mixture of both is doomed to ultimately fail in the long run. I think another problem with the original counterculture was that it was defined much more by what it was against than what it was for. And I think that also is a problem long-term for a movement. Don't get me wrong. Opposing something is very important and very powerful, and you do have to know what you're against. But when that's really all you have, and when someone asks you what you're for, if you either have no answer or the answer that you have is just vague, incoherent, drug-induced ramblings about, yeah, man, we want a more fair place, man, of fairness and a better system with more humane, man. Well, if that's all you got as far as what you're, what you're for, I don't think you're likely to be able to successfully stick it out in the long run and accomplish anything really um, substantive. I think another problem with the old counterculture was it really, really got buried in the hedonism and the libertinism in the sex, drugs and rock and roll. And by the way, I'm not someone who's opposed to sex, drugs and rock and roll as such, but I also have more of a balanced attitude of getting totally lost in those things is going to really limit your ability to be effective in your life, to accomplish things that you might really think are important and you want to accomplish. If you get totally lost in sex, drugs, and rock and roll, you're not going to accomplish the things you might want to. So again, I'm not condemning sex, drugs, and rock and roll from any sort of a straight-laced, square, puritanical, morality police type point of view. In fact, uh, quite far from it. it. Damn near the opposite is my attitude towards those things. But my attitude towards vices if you want to use that term, my attitude towards vices basically is some form of the Aristotelian mean. I don't think it's good to have no vices whatsoever. I don't think it's good to have a puritanical attitude for a variety of reasons. But I also think that there needs to be some amount of moderation in your vices. Maybe a tricky balancing act for a lot of people to accomplish. But I think that's the ultimate goal for a happy and productive life is not to be totally vice free, but to have your vices in moderation, to have them limited, to not have them take over and destroy your life. And one more thing I'll mention about the old counterculture and why it ultimately in the long run failed in so many ways is that it was successfully attacked and marginalized in many ways by the authorities and by authorities here, I mean both the state itself and also the state's kind of lapdog institutions in society, such as the mainstream media in particular. And of course, because of the other weaknesses I've already mentioned, the old counterculture was very vulnerable, perhaps more vulnerable than it might have been to being undermined by the establishment. Because its flamboyant hedonism meant that it got a lot of attention. And I think a lot of the old counterculture people, that, that's really what they wanted more than anything else was attention. So it brings them up on the authorities' radar. And then the fact that they were philosophically incoherent and inconsistent, defined more by what they were against than what they were for, and were distracted, uh, so many of them, in this caricature of hedonism, that's why you end up vulnerable to being attacked and undermined by the authorities. So that's just a little bit about the old counterculture, what it was, and my thoughts on kind of what made it tick and what made it also not work out as well as it otherwise might have. What about the new counterculture? Well, long story short, I think I'm part of it. And I think probably many of you who are listening right now are part of it too. Believe it or not, I've actually seen articles wherein conventional mainstream conservatives in the United States claim that they are the new counterculture. And this to me is pretty frickin' ridiculous. I mean, I understand the argument that it is rebellious to be a conservative in a realm like Hollywood or academia or some specific context. But nonetheless, to call 
the listeners of Rush Limbaugh and Sean Hannity, counterculture is a complete perversion of the entire concept. Because these people are not rebelling against their culture. They're simply arguing that the culture should adhere more to some traditional, uh, largely fictitious, mythical version of its past. I've also seen a few leftist articles over the years where they claim they're looking for and might be seeing the little green shoots of a reemergence of the traditional original counterculture, I should say. In other words, the counterculture that we just talked about of the 60s and 70s. And to me, this is unlikely to actually happen on a large scale, to have simply a a reiteration of that older counterculture, other than maybe isolated individuals who are kind of, you know, lost in nostalgia for some 60s that never were, and that if they're, you know, under the age of 60 today, they probably were too young to have actually lived through anyway. It's funny how both the mainstream right and the mainstream left in this country love to look back to pasts that never actually happened, love to look back to golden ages that really weren't quite so golden if you actually go and scratch the surface. No, our new counterculture is something different, something different from both the mainstream left and the mainstream right. It's something that certainly has some parallels to and connections with the old counterculture, but which is still its own new thing. Instead of talking about the new counterculture as an abstract mass movement, let me describe what a new counterculturalist, a person who is part of this new counterculture, what they might look like as an ideal type. In other words, an archetype or an ultimate average example of a person that's part of this movement that I'm calling for the sake of this exercise, the new counterculture. How would we describe a person? And then from that, maybe we can then draw larger conclusions about the movement itself. Age, I would say somewhere between early 20s and early 40s would be the heart of the new counterculture. Not to say there aren't outliers, not to say there aren't people both younger and older than that window who are nonetheless part of this in some way. In terms of religiosity, our ideal counterculturalist of the new counterculture would be somewhere on the spectrum from, let's say, a theologically relaxed religious person to an outright atheist. So somewhere in that um, spectrum, which would include things like deists and agnostics. So starting from someone who, who does claim to be a member of a particular faith, perhaps even attends a particular denomination, but who has a relaxed view of things, at least somewhat. A person who, for example, believes that members of other belief systems can still get into heaven or achieve salvation or what have you. Believers who acknowledge that other belief systems and other holy books and so on do contain at least some wisdom and aren't just totally useless heathen satanic nonsense designed to trick you. That's what I mean by theologically um, relaxed or maybe even theologically liberal, not liberal in the political sense, but theologically liberal. Our new counterculturalist is somewhere on the spectrum ranging from theologically liberal religious person through deist and agnostic out to atheist. And most, regardless of exactly where they are on that particular spectrum, are skeptical of organized institutional religion, at least somewhat, and especially are skeptical of the very rigid and fundamentalist varieties of any religion. In terms of his or her career, our ideal counterculturalists would have an independent livelihood of some type, be in some way self-employed. Now, this could be as an artisan. This could be as a small business person of some type. This could be as a perhaps even a small farmer of some type. But they have an independent livelihood, or if they don't have such already, they are working towards an independent livelihood. In their own personal lives, these people are financially, I guess, very conservative in some ways, but very adventurous and outside the box in others. These are people that in large part because of the real life experience around them, either of themselves personally or watching others of their approximate generation getting buried and and crucified and, and tied down to 
horrible situations in life through debt. These are people who are very skeptical of debt and are either working on getting out of the debt they have, or if they're lucky enough to have not gotten themselves into significant debt, are very focused on not getting buried in debt in the first place. This is a group of people who believe in real markets and entrepreneurship, but not in corporatism and crony capitalism that our system mostly is geared towards. So on the one hand, they're they're capitalists, but on the other hand, they're rebels against mainstream corporate capitalism as it currently operates in the United States. And I just recently read a very interesting book by a Yale professor named James C. Scott, and the book is Two Cheers for Anarchism. Very interesting book, and the chapter in here that made me think of the financial life and career of our new counter counterculturalists is a chapter he has on what's known as the petty bourgeoisie. Now, the petty bourgeoisie just means the small but independent economic actor, the person who has a small business or is a self-employed artisan or what have you. And this is your type of person that the modern first world American version of this is most likely to be, if they're a person who's kind of a philosophic mind, at least a little bit, part of your new counterculture. Our new counterculturalist doesn't denigrate wealth, and in at least some cases may in fact make a fairly good living or a high amount of money, but our new counterculturalist values independence and quality of life more than they value just pure income. In other words, they would rather work in a situation where they're paying their bills and and taking care of their dependents and so on, but they're not making a huge pile of money. They would rather do that than take some corporate drone job where they actually make significantly more money, but don't have their independence and, you know, hate their job and all that sort of stuff. In political terms, there are some kind of, I guess, Kucinich, Occupy Wall Street leftists sprinkled about in the new counterculture. But I think primarily you find our new counterculturalist politically would be on a spectrum running from Ron Paul Republicans through outright anarchists. But many, and in my opinion, the wiser among them of the new counterculturalists are focused more on a day-to-day basis, on maximizing liberty in their own life rather than on trying to fix or to change huge institutional things. These are people who are more likely to think about what can I do in my own daily life to make myself more free and happy than to always look up to the top of the pyramid, to always look and say, well, if we could just get fill-in-the-blank in charge then everything will be peachy keen and I'll be okay. I think to really be a full-fledged member of the new counterculture, you almost have to have been somewhat embittered and made cynical by the failures of politics. But then to choose not to wallow in that failure, but to dust yourself off and say, yeah, okay, I kind of had to go through that process of trying to work through, through the conventional political system to see that it doesn't work, that it doesn't achieve anything good, so that then I will understand that that's not where I need to look, that I need to look in my more immediate vicinity. So this is people who, to use the terminology of the famous book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, these are people who have, at some point, focused more on their circle of influence than on just their wider circle of concern outside of their direct influence. In terms of social issues, what are, what are called social issues in politics, the attitudes of our new counterculturalist towards vice, whatever that might mean to an individual, the attitude towards vice is neither puritanical nor pure hedonist. This person is not, this new counterculturalist is not possessed of any antipathy towards someone due to things like sexual preference or occasional indulgence in certain substances and so on, even if that new counterculturalist might in their own personal life be in fact quite square, quite Ned Flandersy. So what gives me hope in some ways for the new counterculture, as opposed to the old, is that in the new counterculture, 
there seems to be on the part of most people who I at least would identify as part of the new Hannah culture, there seems to me to be a more balanced view towards vices, towards drugs and sex and partying and whatever. The notion that you shouldn't be puritanical and condemn all these things and always abstain from all of them, but that going crazy over the top, off the rails, um, full bore hedonism isn't really a great idea either. In terms of their education, our member of the new counterculture, our ideal type would be someone who, whether they're possessed of formal higher education degrees or not, is a person who understands and readily acknowledges the limitations of formal degrees and formal schooling. And a this is a person who actively pursues knowledge on their own. Um, this is a person, though, who, even if they don't have much in the way of formal degrees and credentials, is a highly literate and intelligent person that reads a lot, thinks a lot, and learns a lot. For the most part, this is the type of person who joins relatively few, if any, organizations or institutions. This is a person who gets most, if not all, of their news from the so-called new media or alternative media. And this is a person who rarely, if ever, gets information from standard TV or from newspaper sources. I think if you had to say, ideally, where would our ideal countercultural, um, new counterculture archetype live? I think the ultimate would be a blue city inside of a red state. So, for example, Austin, Texas, or Asheville, North Carolina. These come to mind of blue cities inside of predominantly red states. There are others as well. Any decent-sized college town in a red state would probably fall into this category as well. Being in the blue city allows our new counterculturalists to have access to lots of cultural type activities and things, but in a red state, they have the lower state taxes, the better state firearms laws, and so on. Living in a blue city very often also gives our new counterculturalist access to better food. And that's another thing that I would say is a defining attribute of the new counterculture and that would definitely be part of our ideal new counterculturalist is a concern with food with the quality of their food, with trying to reduce their consumption of processed foods and you know all the bad stuff coming out of the big agribusinesses these days. Our new counterculturalist probably produces at least a bit of his or her own food, if not much of it. And uh, even if they're not producing a huge amount of their own food, even if they're only producing a little bit, they probably try to get as much high-quality, organic, local food as they can from things like farmer's markets and co-ops. And when they go to eat at restaurants, they prefer to eat at locally-owned, non-chain restaurants that have a higher-quality food, both in terms of taste and in terms of nutrition, you know, health. Even though our new counterculturalists might not be heavily involved in politics, though, the person probably does have some real identifiable and in terms of the mainstream, largely unconventional positions on many issues that taken together seem to define the new counterculture stances, which make it very tough to pigeonhole into existing mainstream parties or ideologies. And again, this is my observations on averages. There are certainly people you could probably argue are part of the new counterculture that don't fit all these, but just some that pop into my mind right off the bat are things like these are people who are broadly speaking, small L libertarians. They're anti-war and anti-imperialist. They're anti-war on drugs some of them personally use drugs, some don't, but regardless of their personal behavior with drugs, they oppose the war on drugs as a bigger damaging thing to society than the bad effects of drug abuse itself. These people tend to be pro-gun or at least neutral on the question of guns and are not in favor of draconian gun ban laws. They believe in individuals' right to self-defense. They're against big government, but also against big corporations. 
despite being mostly free market, they seem to, for the most part anyway, grasp the difference between the real free market and the corporatism, the crony capitalism, the economic fascism, the neo-mercantilism, whatever else you want to call it, that's what in the United States and in the rest of the developed world is actually the dominant economic form. These people tend to be anti-partisan, not bipartisan, but anti-partisan. They don't fit well with left or right having elements of both and also elements that are opposed to both. I remember one time Joe Rogan once, kind of half-jokingly, in a podcast episode, and I can't for the life of me remember which one, called himself the link between the hippies and the right-wingers, even though I, I can't remember the episode where he said that. The idea stuck with me so much that I can still remember it, and I think I'm quoting it almost word for word there. I think he may have really had a point when you look at his points of view and the range of guests he has on his podcast. You know, this is a guy who's hugely pro-hunting, but also pro-marijuana and pro-psychedelics. This is These are not things that, in the standard ideological spectrum and partisan mold, are supposed to go together. If you're a hunter, you're supposed to be a right-wing Christian social conservative. And if you're for marijuana and psychedelics being legal and, and, and argue that those things actually have some positive effects, you're supposed to be some vegan who hates hunters. Rogan doesn't seem to have any partisan loyalties in the conventional sense. He's pro-gay rights, but he also defends conservatives when he feels the media treats them unfairly. So you could argue that someone like him might be one of the most famous examples of this new counterculture, a guy who actually does have you know some presence in the mainstream media and celebrity establishment, but also is clearly not like the rest of them. And I'm sure that all of us can think of many, many more examples of people who might fit this mold of new counterculture. Um, for example, all the podcasts that I've been a guest on so far, I would definitely consider parts of the new counterculture as well. In many ways, I would say that Carl Hess is very close to being an ideal new counterculturalist. But he was way ahead of his time in this. He was way out front. But in many ways, he probably embodies this concept of combining the best of what has been called the new left and the old right. The new left referring to the anti-war left of the 60s and the old right referring to the anti-war libertarian right of the 30s, 40s, and somewhat of the 50s in the United States. Carl Hess combined a lot of what was best of the new left and the old right in both his ideas and in his lifestyle, and also took some of these ideas in different directions. You know, he eventually did make the fateful journey all the way to the dreaded A-word of anarchism. But I think if you take Carl Hess and you made him someone who was part of Gen X or Gen Y, I think you'd pretty much have an ideal new counterculturalist. By the way, I will link in the show notes for this episode back to Dangerous History podcast episode number 11, which was an episode about Carl Hess. Of course, forgive the cruddy audio quality of that episode. I was still doing another thing that... I think the new counterculture is big on, which is sort of DIY and learning by doing. And that definitely is what I was still doing back in those early Dangerous History podcast episodes. I mean, I'm still learning how to do better recording and production of podcasts today. But when I listen back to some of those, I think, oh, man, if only I had known what I, what I know now. But I'll leave, it, I'll, I'll, I'll leave those as is, though. And regardless of the less than creamy audio quality of that episode, I still think it's a good episode worth listening to. And I still stand by, you know, what I said, even if I don't necessarily stand by exactly how I recorded and processed it. Now, why have I been thinking so much about this idea of the new counterculture? Why am I potentially even considering writing a book-length treatment of the subject? Why am I talking about this? Well, it's because, as I think I've kind of referred to before, I think, at least in some ways, I'm a part of this. I fit most of those things that I just said. Now, I'm entirely open to the possibility that I could just be looking to identify my own characteristics with a larger movement in order to make myself feel like I'm a part of something besides, you know, just being one maverick weirdo off by myself who's different from the mainstream. It's entirely possible that could be the case, but I don't think so. I think there is a new counterculture, and I do think I at least somewhat on some levels am 
plugged into it. Certainly not making the claim that I'm more plugged into it than, than anyone else or anything like that. Far from it. There are plenty of people who are much more plugged into it. But ironically, the people who are much more plugged into the movement are people who might be, because they're more plugged into it, less conscious and aware of the movement itself and what really makes it distinct. But let me run through some of my specs. And by the way, how many of you, when I was running over the characteristics of our ideal new counterculturalist, how many of you listening to this were thinking, yep, that's me, yep, check, check, right? I would wager that probably a very high percentage of you listening to this, when I ran through those characteristics, met most of them, if not all of them. Now, me personally, I fit most of that. I'm in my mid-30s. I was born either at the very end of Gen X or the very beginning of Gen Y, depending on how you want to date the generations, which is always a controversial thing. I am an atheist. I don't believe in any religion. I don't have an independent livelihood. I'm employed by a college, but I am working on maybe having an independent livelihood if I keep building this podcast and doing this sort of thing. I have moderate views on vices. I indulge occasionally in some of them, but I try not to overdo it or, or let it negatively impact my overall life. But I certainly have no sympathy for Puritans or fundamentalists of any stripe, of any denomination. I have an education up through a master's degree in history, but I'm very skeptical of formal institutional education these days. Not saying that my history education was totally useless and a waste of time. Uh, certainly, I got lots of knowledge and skills out of that. But the way in which our culture is so fixated on formal education and degrees and things, to me, is very troubling and very damaging. I've always been a big reader. I read just all the time, very omnivorously, all across the board, many subjects, not just history, and I've long been something of an autodidact, and me making this podcast is just the latest example of me being an autodidact, of, of learning something on my own, you know, consulting with people who know more about it than I do on occasion, and, and watching instructional videos, and reading about it, and whatever, but at the end of the day, this is, you know, me pursuing how to podcast and that sort of thing, not me being part of a class that is saying, okay, you're going to learn this and here's how you're going to learn it. I'm a member, I think, of pretty much no major institution or organization these days, at least no voluntary one, right? I mean, I'm, you know, got a social security number and all that, but that wasn't exactly voluntary. I get none of my news and info from the mainstream media other than occasionally watching tidbits just to check in and verify that they're still as full of shit as they were the last time I tried listening to them. But, you know, it's difficult. It's difficult for me to watch much mainstream news or listen to much mainstream talk radio. It just drives me insane, makes me just want to. It's not good. Not good. I don't currently live in a blue city inside a red state like I talked about before, but I have lived in places like that before, and I very much like visiting those sorts of places. For example, most recently, I spent a little bit of time in Asheville, North Carolina. I've been there before. It's a neat town. I like it. I do grow a teensy bit of my own food. Not a whole lot because of time and circumstances. I'm on a very small suburban lot, and I don't have all day to be out there doing large-scale permaculture, even if I did have the space and otherwise the ability to do so. But I do grow a little bit of my own food here and there, do a little bit of edible container gardening, that sort of thing. And I do try to buy local as much as possible. And I certainly do eventually, at some point in the future, want to produce more of my own food when time and circumstances allow. So after running through some of my own characteristics in regards to the new counterculture, I would say that I'm on the far end of this group in many of my views and beliefs. You know, being an atheist is on the far end of this whole thing. Being an anarchist is also on the far end of this whole thing. But I'm actually moderate in terms of my lifestyle. I'm not living on some off-the-grid, self-sufficient permaculture farm or anything like that. By the way, not putting you down if, if you are. In fact, in at least some ways, I'd be somewhat jealous of you. Though I don't want to be totally off the grid. I do kind of like air conditioning. I still have a foot and maybe even a foot and a half, you might say, 
in the conventional mainstream world. You know, I've got a house in the suburbs. I've got two kids. I don't have a minivan, but my wife does. I've got a nine to five job with a commute, the whole, whole nine yards. I've got a mortgage, you know, so I'm not entirely outside the mainstream. So it's sort of like I got a foot in each world, which is kind of interesting. And again, I think give somebody like me a, a unique perspective, especially combined with the fact that I'm used to looking at things and thinking about things in terms of historical context. So perhaps the fact that I still have a lot of my life in the mainstream, but have very outside of the mainstream views on things, plus the fact that I'm an historian helps me to see the big picture of these developments more than most people would with more clarity and context than most people would. Obviously, those who are totally in the mainstream of the conventional society would be largely completely blind to the new counterculture, but also perhaps those who are in terms of lifestyle out on the fringe are somewhat blind to the larger movement as well because they're too busy living submerged in the counterculture to really be noticing it, observing it, and thinking about it in the ways that I am. And good for them, by the way. We need doers, not just thinkers and analysts and people who write and speak about describing things. Will the new counterculture achieve more lasting things of value, more of a positive, lasting impact on society as a whole than the old counterculture of the 60s and 70s did? I definitely don't claim to know for sure. My answer is maybe, and I hope so. I'm rooting for it. So why maybe? Why do I think it might have a better chance of accomplishing more than the old counterculture? Well, first off, it looks to be, at least from my perspective, less narcissistic and also less destructive, including less self-destructive. New counterculturalists are more likely to focus on building alternatives than they are on trying to destroy the existing systems. So, for example, rather than trying to damage the government or something like that, they're mostly looking to just, you know, do their own thing and uh, just have as little to do with the government as possible. Another thing I'll say, and I've kind of hit, hit on this before, is that there's less mindless, way-over-the-top hedonism going on, at least for the most part. I know that wacky shit goes down at Porkfest and other events like that and so on, but I think it's less of just like the norm in the new counterculture than it was in the old counterculture where it was just like, you know, let's all do acid and then screw in the mud all day while Jimi Hendrix plays the Star Spangled Banner. One thing that I think it's such a cliche to say, but I really do believe it's true, is that in this area, as in so many others, the internet really is a game changer. It allows so many more great things to happen, so many more great things to be built, so many more ideas to be disseminated, so many more sacred cows and official myths to be destroyed. It really is something that, I mean, think about it, the old counterculture of the 60s and 70s had nothing even remotely resembling the internet. They had printed newsletters, they had pamphlets, they had phone trees, and, you know, in a way, kind of, you got to doff your hat to them that they accomplished what they did with such, by our standards, primitive technology. So it's something that potentially could make the new counterculture much more effective than the old. I mean, even if the old counterculture was concerned with the monetary system, for example, which I don't think they really were. I've, I've never encountered very many 60s and 70s radicals complaining about the Federal Reserve and fiat currency and whatnot. But even if they were seriously concerned with the monetary system back then, it's not like they had any means to make something like Bitcoin, is there? And yet now here we are and we have Bitcoin. I think the new counterculture still could be very messed up very damaged by the powers that be, especially the state and their lapdogs, such as the major corporate media. But perhaps the new counterculture will be harder for the state to destroy because perhaps it is and will be that perfect decentralized movement or organization in that it has no central nervous system or leadership for the state to attack but it's united on enough in terms of real principles and ideas that it will endure and accomplish things regardless of whatever countermeasures the state might deploy.
Now, those of us who are in any way part of this, either actively or passively, or who support it in any way, need to make sure that the new counterculture do what we can, at least, to prevent the new counterculture from either A, falling apart into uselessness like the old counterculture eventually did, or B, having the new counterculture get organized and official, and thus most likely co-opted by corporations or the state into some kind of sanitized, you know, eunuch version of itself. We don't want either of those things to happen. We don't either want it to become, to just disintegrate. We also don't want it to become ossified and too official, too centralized, too organized, and in the process of doing, essentially lose the soul of the movement. I think that's inevitable that that would happen. The iron law of oligarchy and things like that would kick in, and you would end up with something that is a sad parody of itself. And I guess the only analogy I can think of to describe what I mean is, think of when grunge music first came out in the 1990s, if you were around Uh, living through that and think of how when that new music from seattle primarily first started coming out how different it was how raw and yet so you know real authentic it wasn't corporate canned bullshit like everything else on the radio typically is most of the time and think about how great even if you're not into that that kind of music i think you had to respect the purity of the original you know first grunge rockers to start to get some national attention. And then look what happened within just a few short years once the corporate media glommed onto it and, you know, labeled it, packaged it, and so on. It it turned into a joke. It turned into a sad parody of itself. You go from bands like Soundgarden to bands like Silverchair or, heaven forbid, Creed, right? Bush. These just, you know, fourth rate copy of a copy of a copy of a copy, official corporate sanitized versions of grunge. And I think we need to keep an eye out for if anything analogous to this starts to happen in regards to this new counterculture. I think a good reason for optimism that the new counterculture will be more successful in causing lasting positive change than the old counterculture is that the new one is quieter. It's more focused on doing good than on getting attention and tweaking the establishment. And this tendency to be more low key might keep new counterculturalists below the radar enough for long enough that the movement such as it is can have deep um, positive impacts before the powers that be bother going after it. And perhaps by the time it really comes up as a threat on the establishment's radar, it'll be too late for them to really do much effective against it. But perhaps the greatest reason for hope for the new counterculture is that it is more focused on its circle of influence than on its circle of concern. And again, this is language from the book Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I'll put it in the show notes as one of the book recommendations for today. But this is a book where basically the idea is you've got a large circle known as your circle of concern. And then within that, there's a smaller circle that's your circle of influence. And the circle of influence is the things you can actually really affect in a direct way. And the argument of the book in regards to this is that effective people are those who focus primarily their time and energy on the circle of influence, the things they actually can have an effect on. And so what affects your, your life more and what can you have more of an effect on who's in the white house at any given time or what you're doing with your time in your own household, what you're doing with your money, what you're choosing to support and not support what you're choosing to eat or choosing not to eat right? Which things, A, do you have more influence, and B, actually have more influence on you? It's true that a lot of people who are part of the new counterculture may have really been brought into the movement initially through conventional institutional politics, but once they're in it and once they try a few times, I think at least the smarter among these people realize after a couple of election cycles, okay, this is a total waste of time and energy. I'm going to go devote my time and energy to things that matter more, and then I can actually affect more in the first place. 
another book I'll try to remember to put in the show notes that's interesting along these lines and I think has influenced a lot of people that are part of the new counterculture, whether they've ever read it or not, I think it still might have influenced them second, third, or fourth hand, is the book How I Found Freedom in an Unfree World by the great late Harry Brown. And I'll try to remember to put that as one of the Amazon links in the show notes as well. I think um, six, seven, eight years ago, there probably were more new counterculture types who were more active in politics, particularly supporting Ron Paul and things like that. But I think that's largely fizzled out. And I think in really recent years, new counterculturalists are increasingly less interested in trying to affect conventional politics. You know, some might still occasionally vote, some might not, but I think increasingly it's less of a direct concern. People are starting to see it more for what it is, largely a bunch of pageantry that doesn't really change anything. Our new counterculturalists are increasingly more concerned with liberty in their own personal life. And they realize that things like becoming self-sufficient, developing an independent livelihood, avoiding and minimizing debt, thinking for themselves, teaching themselves, these sorts of things are going to do much more for one's personal freedom in real life than squandering your time, your energy, your money, all these finite resources in things like conventional politics, where, let's face it, your odds of achieving anything good that will affect your personal freedom in a positive way are so close to zero that they might as well be zero. Well, anyway, I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up. I hope you found this discussion interesting and also useful, thought-provoking, and I hope it'll have some sort of relevance to you, aside from just, you know, giving you something to listen to during your commute or while you're cutting the grass or whatever. Some important announcements about some of the topics that, as of right now anyway, I'm planning on covering in the relatively near future, meaning in the next month or two or so. One thing is, I'm going to do an episode on samurai and ninjas, so that ought to be kind of cool. Everybody always thinks samurai and ninjas are interesting and fun anyway, but of course, as is always the case, I'm going to be doing my best to take a very deep look and try and get an unconventional point of view on what samurai and ninjas were really all about in feudal Japan. I'm also going to be sometime next month doing an episode on the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, since next month is the 70th anniversary of those horrific events. And I'm planning on, in the next month or two, at least beginning a mini-series on sort of guerrilla, insurgent, irregular warfare throughout the past couple centuries or so of history. This is a miniseries that may or may not be consecutive. I'm honestly not sure at this point. This is something I've been thinking about and doing preliminary planning on for quite a while, and I'm not sure exactly when it'll start, but I think that's something that uh, most of you will also find very interesting and has lots of important lessons for the present and the future as well, I think. Also, I might in the relatively near future do Dangerous History podcast villains features on two very different villains, both of whom I've been thinking about doing in podcasts for quite some time. Two very different villains separated by thousands of years and thousands of miles, one of which is Robert Morris, the American bankster of the revolutionary and sort of federalist era, and the other is Sargon of Akkad, one of the world's earliest known emperors from ancient Sumeria. So those are just some of the things I have in mind to cover in the relatively near future. And understand, I have an enormous list of potential future episode topics, and um, if you're waiting for me to cover something or if I've had an email exchange with you where you've mentioned a topic and I've said, Oh yeah, I am planning on covering that at some point, please. I am still planning on covering all those topics. Um, it's just a matter of time. And I usually am only thinking a few episodes in advance, unless I'm in a consecutive miniseries or something like that. So anyway, understand I have a gigantic list of topics and even if I don't get to some topic, you really, are waiting for, I, I will get to it eventually. Just stay tuned. And who knows, in the meantime, maybe the stuff I do cover is stuff you'll be surprised uh, how much you find it interesting and enlightening. Next time, though, I'm going to do something very different. I'm going to do my first ever episode of listener emails, sharing several interesting listener emails with great questions and or comments, and then responding to them. So it should be a lot of fun. 
As always, if you have any comments or questions related to this particular episode, you can either leave them in the comment section for this episode at my website, or you can email me. The email address is profcj at profcj.org. I'd really love to hear your thoughts and feedback about this new counterculture concept, since it's something I've been kind of working on in my own head for quite some time. I'd love to hear whether you think there's something to it, that I might be actually onto something, or whether you think I'm a delusional nutjob who should never be allowed in front of a live microphone. An affliction that, by the way, for some reason, I think we should name Biden Syndrome. Remember, you can also connect with the show on Facebook and on Twitter, and you can subscribe to the show in venues such as iTunes and Stitcher. There are several ways you can support the show. One, of course, is simply to help spread the word about the show in any way you can. Another is you can consider leaving a rating or a review in iTunes or Stitcher in order to encourage other people to try listening to the show. You can also help the show financially, either by donating directly, profcj.org slash donate. There you can donate via PayPal, either a one-time or recurring, you know, monthly donation. Or you can donate via Bitcoin if you prefer as well. You can also help the show out financially by purchasing items from Amazon.com by first going through any of the many affiliate links found on my website. My website, again, is profcj.org. Huge thank you to everyone who's donated or bought from my Amazon links recently. Um, been a lot of help this summer. I really appreciate it. Also, in the relatively near future, I haven't quite finished it yet, but in the relatively near future, I will be setting up an account through Patreon, wherein you can sign up to help out the show at a specific amount you know, per podcast episode. So that should be really cool. Other podcasters have been using this. I just found out out about it a few weeks ago and I'm pretty excited. It seems like it might have great potential to help podcasters and of course other creators of anything to get some direct kind of crowdfunding support from their fans. So look for Patreon as an option in the near future for you to help out the show financially. Thank you for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. This has been Prof. CJ helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.